Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hi, good afternoon and welcome to the latest part IFG live. This time it's sort of back to where it all began. We're going to be talking about Brexit. Uh, I'm Joe Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and I'm delighted to be joined by IFG's crack Brexit team. Uh, looking around my screen, I have Maddie Timmont-Jack, hashtag mad about parliament. Maddie basically came to public prominence as the person who knew what was going on as that withdrawal bill went through parliament. Then we have Jess Sargent. Jess is a constitutional expert. She knows about referendums. Yeah. Not so much need for those this year, maybe, but she also knows about devolution and the Northern Ireland Protocol. Georgie Wright, joining us from Brussels, is the person who basically is a member of every commission WhatsApp group. So her connections into Europe are, I think we might say, sans pareil. And finally, last but not least, the most recent recruit into IFG's team Brexit, James Kane. James is a refugee from working on trade policy in government. As somebody asked in the questions, now that James Kane has left, is there anyone left who knows anything about agri-food trade back in government? We might get onto that a bit. So this seemed like a really good time to ask what is going on? Where are we? Where are we going? Those of you that have followed IFG's work uh, on Brexit over the years, and I hope that's almost all of you, if not, go discover it, will know that we classify our work into various sort of parts of the ginormous task that the UK has faced ever since that day, almost exactly four years ago, when the UK decided to vote leave. We look at the negotiations, we look at the process of legislating for Brexit, and we look at the process of implementing all the results of those negotiations and the accompanying legislation. And that's what we're going to do today. So I'm going to kick off by asking Georgie, well, where are we? This week we saw the high-level Zoom conference, I think a bit of a first with Boris Johnson, flanked by his trusty, uh, trusty companions, Michael Gove and David Frost, confronting the three from the European institutions. And they neither side walked out. Maybe it's not so good walking out if you're in a Zoom conference on your own. But Georgie, did that make progress? Where have we got to? I think it was sort of yes and no, really. It wasn't the make or break moment that many were hoping for. Um, but I think overall, particularly on the EU side, um, it was quite positive. First, of course, the Prime Minister was there. So clearly this um, show and willingness and commitment to reaching a deal, which I think actually goes a very long way in the EU. And that followed a very fruitful joint committee meeting between Michael Gove and Maris Sefcovic, his EU counterpart, uh, the Friday before that. Um, so clearly there are signs that things are moving. And I think this was an important moment um, in that respect. But obviously, all the sticking points remain. And I think, you know, you can agree to have more meetings, but actually that doesn't bring you any closer to a deal. You actually need to see movement on both sides. So the proof really will be in the pudding in a couple of weeks time. So the UK's always sort of cast the Commission as a bit of a villain in the piece and thought, if only the member states got involved, we've got President Macron, uh, as we're recording this, uh, landing in London, going to maybe not a walk in the woods or a walk at the wedding venue like uh, the Boris Johnson's famous walk with Leo Varadkar, but meeting the Prime Minister one-on-one, though appropriately socially distanced, two metres meets one metre, maybe they'll meet at one and a half metres, who knows? 
Um, are member states critical to getting a breakthrough? Is the UK giving any signals out that might lead member states to think that, yeah, the UK is really, really there for a deal? Again, I think that's where the high level meeting was quite interesting, because when you read EU press um, following it, they, they clearly was, well, look, the prime minister was there, he showed up um, and he's keen to get a deal. So let's take stock of that. But obviously, um, you know, corralling 27 member states and the European Parliament and getting sort of them to agree on how much they're going to move um, if they are going to move and compromise with the UK is not an easy task. And I think that's why, to a certain extent, Michel Barnier has been sort of asking the UK to kind of be perhaps more upfront about what they want um, and showing how it would help you know, how it would benefit the Europe as a whole and not just the UK. So I think, again, that, that sort of positive signal that the Prime Minister is serious about a deal um, will help. So, James, we've got some, you know, we've got good mood music, maybe better mood music. We've got this intensive schedule of meetings in the coming, uh, coming couple of months with meeting weekly rather than every three weeks. And I think it's sort of some language about trying to agree principles for moving forward. But... Will they be able to find a way over the stumbling blocks? Maybe you'd just like to talk us through the obstacle course between uh, where we are now and actually landing that trade deal, first of all. I think there are three big issues outstanding that they will need to find some way of resolving. Issue one is the infamous level playing field. So the idea that the UK should make commitments effectively not to undercut the EU uh, so that its businesses can compete fairly with one another. Uh, issue two is governance. So uh, do all of the bits of the UK-EU relationship form part of a single agreement or are they split between uh, half a dozen or a dozen different agreements, one on foreign policy and one on fish and one on trade and one on energy and so on. And the third issue, which I've already given away actually, is fish. Uh, and there is the uh, issue where we seem to have seen the most movement over the last uh, week or two. It's all a bit hush-hush and there are hints on both sides, but it does seem that both the EU and the UK are finally starting to move past their very hard-line opening positions, the EU saying effectively that we want everything to continue exactly as it is now under the common fisheries policy, and the UK saying we don't want to guarantee any access to our waters for your fishermen. And there we do seem to be starting to see a bit more uh, movement towards a deal. On issues one and two, I think the two sides are still quite far apart, uh, and I don't think that necessarily that agreeing principles will be as easy as it sounds, because actually it's on the principles and not really the detail that the two sides are most divided. So where might we land? I'm going to go through these to this is to put you on notice, as Keir Starmer might say, James, that I'm going to ask you where we're going to land on all these. So first of all, where do you think we might land a deal on fish? You said there's some signs of I think they've said timid movement on both sides. On fish, I think the, the key issues are numbers and time. So the EU has started off by saying that it wants the quotas, the amount of fish that EU and UK fishermen can catch in the, the shared waters of the two sides to stay the same forever. That's clearly going to change. So it does seem like the EU is willing to make concessions that there should eventually be a move towards an allocation of quotas uh, that perhaps reflects better, uh, as the UK would say, where the fish actually live. So there does seem to be some movement on that point. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, uh, the UK 
might start to think about moving around this idea of annual negotiations, whether we have to agree the quota for, for all kinds of fish annually, and, and EU fishermen have essentially absolutely no security at all over whether they'll be able to keep doing their business next year. So on fish, uh, I think if, if the two sides can move on those principles, then we can start looking at perhaps a transition phased over a few years towards a different quota share. Uh, and one important thing to remember there, it's a, bit, uh, it's a bit grim, but a lot of fishermen are quite old. Uh, so if you can extend the period over which the shift towards different quotas uh, are, 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 is implemented, uh, then you're going to get fishermen on the EU side leaving the industry through a, a process that some people have indelicately called natural wastage. Uh, and so the, the issue, to a certain extent, starts to become less salient, perhaps. OK, that's an interesting approach on fish. Uh, I'm not sure the people who are interested in level playing fields are going to naturally waste in quite the same way. So where might we be able to do a deal on level playing field, which has been one of the EU's demands? Michel Barnier, you know, waving that political declaration at the UK and telling the UK off, I thought, in a bit of a reversion to his... Uh, famous schoolmasterly manner that the UK had signed up to these commitments back in the autumn and now well, he wouldn't quite do it in these terms, but now was backsliding a bit on those? Yeah, it's, it's probably fair to say that he has something of a point in that it does look like the political declaration that was agreed last December uh, was, it looked very much like the political declaration that Mrs May had agreed just over a year before. Uh, and you do start, you do almost think that uh, given that the government by that point had decided that it wanted a rather different type of relationship uh, from the uh, one that Mrs May was favouring, that they should probably have made a few more changes to that political declaration than they actually did. Uh, but in terms of landing zones, uh, so to set up the, the positions that the two sides are coming from, uh, you've got the UK saying effectively that it doesn't want to make any binding commitments on issues like the environment or labour standards at all, and it wants to exclude the operation even of the, the sort of ordinary dispute settlement mechanism under the agreement where you have arbitration panels and so on uh, from operating in these, in these areas. The EU, on the other hand, particularly on state aid, so that's the question of government subsidising businesses, uh, wants to bind the UK into the EU state aid regime, the full panoply of EU state aid law uh, to apply in the UK indefinitely, and similar quite tough binding commitments on things like the environment and labour standards. So if you're looking for a middle ground between those, I think it probably comes from stepping back from the specifics of EU law towards principles. So one thing that, that comes out a lot uh, in the political declaration is this idea of non-regression, that wherever the UK starts out at, uh, that wherever the, the common high standards, uh, as the political declaration uh, says, sit now, uh, both sides should commit not to falling below those in future. And so I think if there is a landing zone, it will be getting out of the, the morass of specific pieces of EU law and back to these principles of no reduction in standards. And that's also what we see in a lot of free trade agreements internationally, commitments not to reduce your standards so as to improve your business's ability to compete. And Maddie, we obsess a lot, don't we, about the trade deal, but actually there's quite important other things that aren't in the trade deal. They're all in that big EU comprehensive treaty, but the UK has a separate deal. And one of those is security cooperation. You know, are we going to get a deal on security cooperation? Theresa May, after all, challenged Boris Johnson in the House last week at Prime Minister's questions about whether we would actually manage to uh, 
to sustain a deal there and sustain our access to EU databases. Is that at all feasible given where the two sides are? Well, so I think with, with the security point, I mean, it's sort of interesting that Theresa May did challenge Boris Johnson because actually I don't think there's a huge difference in what the government under Boris Johnson is asking for from what Theresa May wanted, which is basically as close cooperation as possible. Um, and I think that the challenge for security is that the EU is willing to discuss that to a certain extent, but is basing that on a sort of commitment from the UK to continue to be a member of the European Convention on Human Rights. And that's something that currently the UK government is just not willing to do. Um, I think that the other sort of big point, as you've already mentioned, is about the access to EU databases. And again, Theresa May's government wanted to continue to have access to a lot of those databases. So, for example, ECRIS, which deals with criminal records, um, and also CIS2, which um, is about uh, sort of um, being able to notify uh, missing people or missing objects across the, across the uh, EU. Um, the thing about it is that basically from the EU side, the only people who have access to those databases are either EU member states or Schengen member states. And I think actually even um, those countries which have signed up to Schengen um, but are not EU member states, they don't have, for example, access to ECRIS. So it just feels like actually that ask is just much bigger than the EU will ever be willing to consider. Um, but I think this is the sort of approach from the UK side has always been, while it's in both sides' interest to cooperate on these issues, because security is something that's obviously important both for the EU and the UK. So it feels like there is still probably going to, there's still a landing zone, I think, that can be found. And I think it was two weeks ago, Barnier's statement um, following uh, oh, uh, what, it was in the fourth round of negotiations. Um, he sort of suggested there had been some movement on the security uh, partnership. So, so I do think that, that it feels like it's possible, but I don't think the UK is going to get everything that it wants. I mean, the other just broader point I, I'm interested in, and I'm particularly interested, Georgie, in what you think about this too, is, is actually there's sort of a bit of an interesting question about the extent to which both sides actually definitely want a deal. So obviously the UK government is sort of saying it's very willing to walk away at the end of the year without an agreement in any of these areas. I mean, it's sort of trying to leverage that, I think, in the negotiations. And this is obviously a tactic that they also did so last year, when Boris Johnson became prime minister and he wanted to renegotiate the withdrawal agreement, he sort of relied on this idea of we're willing to leave without a deal to try and get the EU to move. And last year, ultimately, I think particularly because of um, the legislation passed by MPs in September, we never really found out whether or not the government was serious about that. And I think obviously Boris Johnson's government has been a lot more convincing than Theresa May's government ever was when she sort of said, first said, no deal's better than a bad deal. But I think it's going to be quite interesting to see later in the year um, quite how serious the government actually is about this possibility of not reaching agreement. And yeah, Georgie, I guess I'm interested in what you think on the EU side, whether you think they're also quite serious about um, possibly uh, accepting the fact there won't be an agreement, um, particularly in the sort of uh, trade space? I mean, I think the EU's thinking has always been hope for the best and plan for the worst. Um, to a certain extent, it really depends on the member state and who you talk to. Um, so some member states feel, well, actually, you know, most of our concerns have been dealt with the withdrawal agreement. Our immediate concerns at least, you know, citizens' rights, what happens to that border between Northern Ireland and the Republic, and in particular, protecting the integrity of the single market. Um, so, you know, anything else really is, is, is a matter for negotiation. That's why they keep on saying, sure, we want a deal, but we want to make sure that substantively it's a good deal. We're not going to sign up just to anything. So I think it really, really depends. Um, there's the other aspect as well, where I think many member states just think that a no trade deal outcome will hit the UK much more than it will hit the EU. And to a certain extent, they are ramping up their 
preparations for a no agreement outcome. Um, but, you know, many of them are used to dealing uh, with kind of, you know, trading partners with whom they don't have a, a trade agreement or at least um, a sort of not, not as integrated relationship as the UK and the EU had until now. And so to a certain extent, they feel that they can weather that storm. Um, but, you know, I think all of them know that even if negotiations break down now, at some point, the UK and the EU will have to get back around that table. But I think for some big member states, in particular France and Germany, there's more thinking going on, and particularly around the strategic autonomy side of things, which is, you know, the UK is an important partner. We want to make sure that if negotiations break down, we can still continue to discuss in all these other areas. And that's something I think the UK government has been keen to say, you know, don't take it for granted. There is a lot here at stake. And so you if you're as rigid as you are on trade, it it might, you know, impact our other areas of negotiation. So I think they haven't made up their mind is is my is my answer. But what I will say is that they are definitely thinking about their own interests as much as the interests of their bilateral cooperation. And James, the James or Maddie, the UK Parliament, uh, is that going to be a roadblock to ratification this time round? Uh, James, I think you were giving evidence on the UK Parliament's role in trade agreements uh, last week. Would you like to summarise it in a couple of sentences? Uh, in a couple of sentences, the UK Parliament has very little role in trade agreements having already conceded most of the powers that the government will need to implement them to it in a series of pieces of legislation passed over the last couple of years. Uh, so they've sold the pass, basically. The uh, government snuck that through while they weren't looking. In effect, I mean, if you look at the centre, the centrepiece of any trade agreement is tariff cuts, or in this case, tariff non-increases. And uh, if you look at uh, Canada, for instance, the Canadian tariff is prescribed in a piece of legislation called the Canada tariff, and only the Canadian Parliament can amend it. So if Canada signs an FTA with someone, they have to put a bill to the Canadian House of Commons uh, that says the tariff on mackerel from Norway is no longer to be whatever it was before and is now to be zero. Uh, in the UK, it's different. Uh, MPs in the 2018 Taxation Cross-Border Trade Act gave the government the powers that it needs to cut tariffs in pursuance of a free trade agreement by a single, simple negative procedure statutory instrument. And none of those has been rejected by the House of Commons since 1979. So they're probably not going to start now. And we've got some questions actually about the parallel negotiations of the US. But, uh, but if the UK did have to concede, say, changes on SPS standards to get a deal, you know, those those animal welfare standards we talk about animal uh, and animal health, uh, would Parliament have a big role in saying no? We've seen lots of uh, lots of amendments down on animal welfare standards, the Agriculture Bill. Uh, depends on the standard you're talking about at the moment. So uh, animal welfare standards in the UK take stocking density for chickens, uh, how many chickens you can pack onto a single bit of uh, wherever you keep a chicken. Uh, those are set by statutory instruments made under the UK's Animal Welfare Act. So they're UK standards, not EU standards. And because they're set by uh, statutory instrument, by ministerial order, in fact, uh, they can also be removed by them. Some other bits of uh, the standards issue, like hormone-treated beef, those are in EU-derived domestic law, uh, and the government may not have powers to amend those without further legislation, uh, legislation from Parliament. 
Okay, that's that's really interesting. And just a question from Birgit Maas, who's asking just about how this interaction goes. We've got the UK is setting off trade negotiations like it's going out of style. We've had the mandates for the Australian New Zealand talks published this week. You know, how do these all interact with the EU talks? Does the fact we're negotiating on so many fronts make getting a deal with the EU easier or does, does it make it harder? I think it probably makes it harder just because everyone's attention will be distracted. Uh, you've got all those ones you've talked about, and then you've got all of the agreements that were part of the what they called the continuity the continuity trade agreements program. So these agreements with countries like Egypt uh, or uh, Cote d'Ivoire uh, that the UK participated in by virtue of its EU membership that the UK is having to roll over, and you've still got quite a bit of that program still to go. And the UK only has one prime minister, it only has one trade secretary. Although officials can keep negotiating these agreements in parallel, eventually the buck has to stop somewhere. And if the prime minister is having to oversee, I think at last when I last counted, it was 10 or 11 different trade negotiations at one time, it's going to be difficult for him to give much attention to any of them. While, of course, dealing with COVID, which is quite a big issue, some might say. So I think when COVID hit, a lot of people thought, well, it's an absolute no-brainer that the UK, you know, despite all the rhetoric, despite putting in the uh, Withdrawal Agreement Act that we wouldn't ask for extension, of course the UK is going to see sense and ask for more time. Um, Maddie, can Parliament do anything now to force the government to ask for more time? I mean, we're in just a very different world in 2020 than 2019. So obviously last year there was a lot of speculation, um, which I also partook in, about what uh, MPs may or may not do to be able to force the government's hand. But I mean, in this scenario, obviously the, the government, you know, Boris Johnson won a big majority in the election at the end of last year. He's got largely got his MPs behind him. I think the other thing to say that's quite interesting, um, I know this is not a podcast about coronavirus, but while we're seeing more sort of discussion uh, quiet amongst his backbenchers about some of the government's response to coronavirus. It seems like Brexit is still the one thing that actually they all pretty much agree on. Um, so I don't think you're going to see anything from MPs, particularly as I say, in terms of trying to force the government's hand. I mean, it's going to be quite interesting to see later in the year again, um, where the government might end up having to make concessions and whether it does upset more of its backbenchers who might have quite strong views about how the UK should sort of trade with the EU in the future future. But um, as, as sort of James has already discussed, there's quite a limited role in Parliament um, anyway in terms of approving trade deals. And actually, by last year, we were all sort of all eyes were on the meaningful vote and whether MPs would vote uh, the withdrawal agreement and political declaration through. That's just not the same this year. So, so I think that um, at the moment, really, MPs are kind of being forced to sit back and, and watch um, and you know if if anything um, you know we looked at we saw Michael Gove and Labour frost up before the uh, future relationship committee in the Commons um, and it feels like the sort of scrutiny from MPs in the Commons is not uh, particularly strong even even in committee corridor although I would say that the House of Lords EU committee seems to do a bit of a better job in terms of asking a bit a few more detailed questions. So just the People that have asked for an extension, we haven't heard anything from Keir Starmer. He's holding the government to its word that it can do a super duper deal by the end of the year. But we have seen quite a lot of objections from the devolves. Does the government have to take any notice of them? Legally, no. 
um, is is the answer. Uh, so the Scottish and Welsh governments have been very vocal um, in saying that they need an extension in order to be ready um, for the end of the year. Uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly also voted in favour of a motion um, to support extension, although the, there's no agreement actually within the executive um, on that. Um, I think the DUP blocked uh, blocked a vote uh, to have that effect. And yeah, the the Scottish and Welsh First Ministers were really upset um, when Michael Gove confirmed that he had told the Joint Committee that they would not seek an extension. Uh, they actually boycotted a call uh, with, with um, Penny Mordaunt over that, um, as I'm sure they'll tell you all about um, in our event on devolution and uh, the future relationship, which will be happening soon. Um, but ultimately, you know, European relations, international relations, trade, they're all reserved matters. And so although uh, the devolved administrations can make political objections. Um, there's really not much that they can do to persuade the government, um, a UK government that's intent on pursuing, um, going ahead without an ex extension. There's really yeah, not much they can do. And do you get the impression that the UK, we've got Holyrood elections next year, do you get the sense that the UK government's paying any sort of, the Conservative Party is paying any sort of political price in either Wales or Scotland for riding roughshod over the views of their governments, which, of course, are governments from a very different party, you know, SNP in Scotland, Labour in Wales. You know, maybe they would say that, wouldn't they? But uh... Yeah, I think that's quite a different story um, in Scotland and Wales. Obviously, if you look at the last general election results, the SNP did quite well, um, whereas actually the Conservatives gained seats in Wales. So I think they are quite different stories. Um, but certainly, particularly in Scotland, uh, the UK government will have one eye on, on those 2021 elections because they will essentially be likely to be fought over a second independence referendum. And if there's a big SNP majority, it puts the UK government in a much more difficult position in continuing to refuse to allow uh, the Scottish government to hold that referendum. But perhaps that's also an argument why uh, they didn't ask for an extension. Say, for example, they'd asked for a six-month extension. That would have fallen a month after um, the elections, which are scheduled for May 2021. Um, and so, uh, yes, in a way, maybe there's an incentive for the UK government to have Brexit, I know Brexit's already been done once, but have, have Brexit all tied up so that it's not an issue in those elections. Um, and it's kind of fought on, on INDUF only, I suppose. Maddie, we're, I want to come back to Parliament. You were saying that this is a sort of bit more of a patsy Parliament, though perhaps not quite the patsy Parliament that we were predicting at the start of the year when Boris Johnson came in with his giant majority. And we've seen some reverse. Indeed, somebody was saying that if you really want an extension, you need to get Raheem Sterling, who I understand is also a footballer, to ask for one, because that seems to be the quickest way to get this government to change its mind. But uh, assuming that no footballer is going to intervene on an extension. You know, where's the government? We saw all those Brexit bills that really rather got stuck under Theresa May. Have they now happily all landed on the statute book? Maddie, you used to spend ages updating uh, slides that basically had lots of bills going nowhere. Are they now going somewhere? Well, we still do have a bill tracker for this parliament, but it's probably not quite as exciting as the one for the last parliament. As you say, um, sort of bills very much got delayed uh, under Theresa May. And I mean, it's interesting because at the start of the year, it looked like it was going to be a completely different story and the bills were going to all sail through. And they sort of, the government introduced pretty much all of that. I think the seven Brexit bills they needed um, pretty much within the first couple of months. Um, and they seem to be progressing nicely. I mean, I would say that actually this is where coronavirus has had an impact. I mean, the fact that Parliament had to move to virtual proceedings did has delayed um, some of that legislation. So, for example, 
and the Im immigration uh, bill was meant to be, well, they firstly delayed that because they couldn't hold a vote. Um, but once votes came back, they then had to delay the committee stage because they said that they couldn't hold public bill committees virtually. Although I think that our colleague, Dr. Hannah White, has challenged Jacob Rees-Mogg on whether or not that is true. Um, but what we are now seeing, uh, the Lords, for example, have now, they're now able to do virtual votes, which I think makes quite a big difference. And obviously the Commons are now more back in the Palace of Westminster. So we are seeing a pickup now in the progress of those bills. I mean, again, it seems to be pretty smooth. It's worth saying that there was, uh, for example, an amendment down to the agriculture bill about food standards. Again, an issue that I think will um, have become more and more uh, prominent within the Conservative Party, where I think it was 21 um, MPs voted against, Conservative MPs voted against the government. I but think that did, of course, include Rishi Sunak, who pressed the wrong button. Yeah, I think that, anyway. that was a good example of how um, it's more challenging as whips to tell MPs uh, how to vote, because when you're all in one place, you can just usher them through the right lobby. Um, but yeah, so so I think that so far it seems like it's going well. I mean, it's worth saying that I think on the immigration bill, uh, David Davis has also tabled some amendments. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see how Conservative backbenchers are trying to influence the government's policy. Um, but it feels like, at least for the moment, um, uh, defeats against government are unlikely, whereas obviously in Theresa May's day, um, we were just sort of counter trying to keep on top of updating our government defeats chart rather than waiting to see if one would happen at all. So George Eustace, I think, just told the Environment Audit Committee this morning that the Environment Bill wouldn't be coming back until September. Does that matter? Does that have to be on the statute book and nicely all passed and good to go by the end of the year? So I think in terms of the Brexit question, the big thing about the Environment Bill is that it will be setting up the Office for Environmental Protection. So this is the public body that the government committed to bringing forward because um, sort of green and uh, and environmental NGOs were concerned about the governance gap uh, created by leaving EU institutions, which basically, if the government um, sort of didn't fulfil its uh, obligations under EU law, they could haul them in front of uh, the European Court of Justice. Um, and so there was a big concern amongst environmental NGOs um, that actually the government would no longer be held to account um, on what it was doing with the environment. So they, they committed to bring in this public body, um, which I think they have sort of semi set up but they have it hasn't got any sort of statutory uh, underpinning right now and that's what the environmental bill will do and they have said that they're going to have it up and running ready to go in January 2021 so they will need to pass um, that bill to be able to give it give it sort of powers it, it um, the government is so far committed to giving so that that is quite an interesting one in terms of how how that will go and whether also the other thing about the environment bill is I don't know the extent to which peers and MPs will be happy about speeding up its passage because it's very long um, and it sort of talk, sets out the government's uh, 25 year environment plan as well so there are some quite uh, important issues in it so I think I think it'll be challenging for the government to speed its passage although if it says you know we need to be able to set up the OEP I don't know that could be used as leverage to, to get um, MPs to play ball. And Jess is, is the government legislating here with devolved consent on things like the agriculture and fisheries build and we used to hear quite a lot about something called common frameworks. Uh, maybe you could just tell us what they are and whether indeed they're all good to go and ready to be dusted down on uh, January the 1st, 2021. Sure. So it's a bit of a mixed picture um, on whether there's consent for these various bills. Um, the Scottish government has been on what I like to call a Sewell strike uh, since uh, the passing of the EU um, withdrawal bill. Um, so basically it said that uh, the 
the UK government has made a mockery of the Seoul Convention that requires legislative consent and therefore it's, it's not going to play anymore. Um, since then, it has actually made quite a few exceptions uh, to that. It has given consent for some bills and I believe in the Agriculture Bill, it's given, sense, it's given consent for some parts, but not others. Um, but most of these bills um, only cover a few areas of devolved competence. In the others, um, it's most a lot of it just applies to England because as you say, there's this other piece of work going on trying to get agreement between the four governments um, on a kind of shared uh, shared framework in, into kind of managed divergence within the UK um, to prevent any kind of barriers to trade or anything that might that might be created um, from different parts of the UK having different regulatory regimes on agriculture or food standards or things like that. Um, they have made some progress um, on the development of common frameworks, but none have yet actually been agreed. And we've heard that COVID has actually really slowed down any progress on that. Um, but there are also these major questions about what uh, what happens to common frameworks now that are designed to protect the UK internal market, now that one part of the UK is bound to EU regulation in a lot of these areas. Um, so there's huge questions going forward as to whether it's possible to have kind of UK wide frameworks and also allow, I guess, particularly England to have the regular, the power to um, diverge that, that, that it wants from the EU. There's a question of whether if you want consistency, and it might be that they take a slightly different approach, but if you want consistency across the UK to prevent these barriers to trade, then essentially either uh, the rest of Great Britain needs to tie itself into EU regulation because Northern Ireland is required to, or they have to exclude Northern Ireland from those frameworks, which politically is not exactly a good look considering the UK government has been very insistent that the protocol still allows the protection of the UK internal market. Um, so there's lots of work that needs to go on there. It looks very unlikely that all that work will be completed and ready uh, before the end of the year, which isn't, you know, isn't the end of the world. Obviously, the EU framework will fall away. So there is the possibility um, that, that different parts of the UK could diverge. Practically, that's probably not a huge risk, but they still at some point, if they want to maintain some kind of consistency across the UK, agree on these. And I think there's going to be big political challenges um, on that coming up. So we've, you've mentioned the famous words Northern Ireland Protocol. That's the <laughs> thing that applies these EU rules. Uh, Boris Johnson's negotiating uh, triumph last October that paved the way for UK withdrawal by agreeing a separate regime for Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland has a degree of certainty about its future trading relationship with the EU, perhaps in a way that the rest of Great Britain doesn't yet have. But are we all done and dusted? Is it just a question of uh, putting in all the systems and getting business ready? Or are there still some outstanding issues on the protocol? Jess James, I'm not sure which of you wants to pitch in on you know, are we clear on the detail? I think Michael Gove and Brandon Lewis yeah. are, as we speak, giving evidence to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee um, and just maybe, again, redefining uh, the UK's approach to the protocol in a way that the EU may not totally agree. Yeah, I mean, so the UK government has now um, acknowledged the extent of what it signed up to um, in the protocol. Unfortunately, it took them seven months to do that. Um, and so I think we're at the point now where they can start to make progress, but still there's a huge amount of detail um, that is really unclear. So, for example, um, 
what, what the protocol says is that assuming that there is no tariff-free trade deal between the UK and the EU, um, is that goods that are moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland that are at risk of moving into the rest of um, the rest of the EU and perhaps through the Republic of Ireland um, are required to pay tariffs. So there's a big question of to what at risk means, and that will be a job for the Joint Committee to determine. Um, so that's still very much not unclear. The other thing the UK government has said is that even if goods are decide, it is decided that these goods are at risk, that the UK government will either reimburse the cost of the tariff or uh, waive it in some way. We have absolutely no idea how that's going to work yet. And that's something Northern Ireland businesses have been very clear that they need some clarity on, because realistically, it's going to be a pretty complicated scheme. Um, so we're starting to see the beginnings of progress uh, but there's still a huge amount to do and really not very long to do it in. I think Northern Ireland business have said they'd actually like a sort of six months period of grace before they have to implement the protocol in full. Um, James you're a lawyer uh, is that feasible to put in uh, some sort of agreement can the joint committee agree to give Northern Ireland six months extra time to get ready? The Joint Committee can decide to extend the transition period for the UK as a whole, uh, at least for another uh, two weeks or so. Uh, but if it doesn't decide to do that, uh, then the protocol comes into effect at the end of the transition period. And the powers of the Joint Committee to make amendments to the Northern Ireland Protocol or to the withdrawal agreement as a whole are very limited. They're essentially correcting errors or omissions or things that have arisen because of a change of circumstances. So, and what what happens if the UK is not ready? Particularly if we've you know if we've broken down in acrimony, we may not walk out in July, but we've broken down. We've said actually this isn't good enough. We're we're off. Uh, so we have no trade deal. We've not got back around the table yet. Uh, what happens if the UK is not implementing? There's been some stories that uh, that in those circumstances, the UK might regard the Northern Ireland Protocol as invalid, uh, voided, doesn't have to do it, or, or indeed that Dominic Cummings gave some assurances to backbenchers that they could actually get out of these commitments if they just uh, you know close their eyes and voted for it uh, back in October and again in uh, January. To be very frank, I think that's rubbish. Um, the most fundamental principle of international law is uh, what is conventionally called in Latin, pacta sunt servanda. Treaties have to be obeyed. Uh, and you cannot sign a treaty which explicitly provides that it's concluded for an unlimited term, it has no exit clause, and then just stop applying it. It's, 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 it's blatantly illegal. There are ways of resolving it or at least addressing it for the Commission, it can bring infringement proceedings against the UK. Uh, by virtue of the European Union Withdrawal Act, uh, 2020, uh, the withdrawal agreement also has a direct effect within the UK, so there would be remedies in domestic courts as well. You could conceivably see people taking judicial reviews against the government to try and force it to implement the protocol. Uh, and also, uh, and perhaps even more importantly, on the international plane, it is just very difficult to see why anyone would ever trust the UK again. Uh, if you're going to sign treaties one year and then uh, break them less than 12 months later or just over 12 months later, well, uh, you wouldn't trust someone who did that in their private lives and you wouldn't trust a country that did it with other countries. What about the Vienna Convention? Isn't the Vienna Convention, you know, uh, unforeseeable change of circumstances? You know, I raise you the Vienna Convention. Doesn't that give me my get-out card? 
Well, I would say the Vienna Convention uh, includes the Pact of St. Servanda principle, uh, Article 31, something like that. Um, there is the principle which uh, in another Latin tag is called rebus extantibus, uh, things being as they are. Uh, effectively, it tags on to the end. Uh, treaties have to be obeyed, provided things stay the same. Uh, well, what frankly has changed? Uh, there is a very limited field of application for this. The only example that comes to mind is uh, a treaty that was concluded with uh, Yugoslavia, and then Yugoslavia actually ceased to exist, and then the uh, and then it was held that the principle applied. But uh, so I, I suppose if, if the United Kingdom fragments completely, uh, then you might have a reasonable case for that. But I don't think that's what uh, Dominic okay. Cummings or Tory MPs have in mind. Okay, not by the end, not, not by the end of the year, Jess. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say that although obviously a big red line of the Brexit negotiations was to end the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice um, in the UK, the protocol has um, means that the European Court of Justice does have uh, jurisdiction in that area. Uh, so there are, yeah, as James says, legal as well, um, legal consequences potentially being a fine or, or somewhat as, as well as a kind of um, international obligation. Maddie, last uh, last October, last September, the government was splashing the cash, telling business to get ready for Brexit because we were going to leave on the 31st of October. I thought that was pretty dodgy to be doing it when they were doing it, given that clearly we might very well not be leaving after the passage of Ben Burtak. But does that mean that actually that's fine, business ready, don't need to do anything more? They were ready on the 31st of October. Yeah, it's fine. They're doing a bit of COVID, but we'll all be good to go at the end of the year, deal or no deal. I mean, basically, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Um, I mean, firstly, I, I would just say that actually the number of businesses who were ready last year, I think, was pretty low. Um, I think in terms of sort of talking about business readiness, we need to think about who we're, who we're talking about. There's sort of a difference between much bigger or, uh, companies and much smaller ones, so small and medium-sized uh, enterprises, SMEs. But also there's a difference between those which are sort of trade in goods and those which trade in services. Um, and we are, I've you know, the... Brexit team at the is looking at, at this and I mean the message we get quite strongly from the conversations we've had is that businesses on the whole are less ready than they were last year and I mean I'm largely talking about businesses which operate uh, trading goods because for example one of the things that you had to do um, bearing in mind there was likely to be uh, friction at the border and you might not be able to get your goods into the country was was uh, to build stockpiles um, and yes while a lot of companies did do that last year those stockpiles have already uh, sort of been used up and, and obviously, right now, a lot of businesses are also having to try and cope with the economic impact of coronavirus. So they don't really have the spare cash to build up stockpiles again. It costs money to find warehouse space and to, and to build those up. So we're sort of already hearing that actually that's going to be a lot harder this this uh, this time round. Um, I think it's also worth saying that last year as well, by the time we got to sort of close to the 31st of October, the government was basically in a position of saying, let's just waive everything through. Um, and although uh, the government has now said last last week that they aren't going to be implementing full checks on the border, not at least until next July, um, it's still not uh, the same level of easements that they were proposing last October, which I think will make it very challenging. I mean, as I say, on the services point, I think it is worth saying that because services, and again, James might be able to uh, expand on this a bit more, but services are largely not included within uh, traditional free trade agreements. I think there was already an acknowledgement pretty much from the Brexit result that actually um, the ability to trade services with the EU was going to change. And actually a lot of, particularly the bigger uh, corporations um, and organisations, they, they could put their plans in place and sort of are a bit more ready to press 
go. And the thing we've also heard is that the the more regulated sectors as well, so financial services, legal um, services, those are the areas where they they are genuinely more ready because they have to be. Um, But I think that the idea that businesses are now ready because they did what they did last year, I think is is absolutely nonsense, to be honest. And and I think that it's, it's, I think that's going to be a big concern. One of the other things we've heard is just the fact that a lot of the people who used to work on Brexit planning have either been furloughed or made redundant. Businesses just don't have the the capacity to be dealing with it right now. And I think it's going to be interesting to see whether uh, the comms campaign that I think was reported on today that the government's going to be rolling out in July, whether actually businesses have the time and, and ability to act on that. I think lots of people are going to wait and see what happens in October because they don't want to spend money until they know what they're spending money on. James, sort of services and data are two areas where they're less subject to the negotiation, they're subject to something called equivalence decisions. Uh, can you just tell us, you know, the UK surely can bank on equivalence decisions because after all, we've been a member of the EU, you know, all our relevant directives are EU directives transposed into UK law. So isn't it an absolute no-brainer that we'll get those equivalence decisions, even if the EU might be going through some formalities, not actually give us the go-ahead until a bit later in the year? Can people bank on those? Not necessarily. Uh, The UK might have, the UK might theoretically fulfil the conditions for equivalence, but equivalence is always something that is granted by the state that is importing the goods or services. Uh, It exists in WTO law, in the WTO SPS agreement, the agreement which deals with animal health and food safety and so on, uh, and in the agreement on technical barriers to trade. But it's very hard to make someone give you equivalence if they don't want to, especially at the moment when the WTO dispute settlement system is not really working. So although the UK might be able to make a good case for equivalence, it's hard to see how it would actually enforce it if the EU just didn't cooperate. I was just going to say, building on what Maddie said, obviously the government has announced that um, it's going to uh, take a more relaxed approach, I guess, to compliance um, at at parts of the border. Um, But they can't do that um, on the border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland because effectively they're applying EU law. Um, And so they can't take this kind of transitional approach um, that they might take elsewhere. And I think that makes it all the more important that we start, you know, seeing the physical infrastructure that might be necessary to conduct agricultural checks um, and things actually being put in place, because if those aren't aren't working completely as they should be on, on, on that day, then they're um, at risk of breaching the treaty. And that could have consequences for for Northern Ireland in terms of um, trade disruption. You know, things have got to jump on a ferry and and cross the water in order to, to feed the supermarkets. Um, um, and if if there's holdups there, then that could have, you know, we could see we could see stockpiling like we saw at the beginning of COVID. And Georgie, uh, on the EU side, you know, if Bre- if uh, coronavirus has pushed Brexit down to number two on the agenda in the UK and quite a distant number two, must have pushed it down to about number ten on your average EU leader's sort of interest list. So where are EU preparations? Are they all prepared? And will the EU sort of see them right in the end? I mean, it's like I said earlier, I think they they sort of have an approach where, you know, they hope for the best, but they prepare for the worst. And you already saw the commission a couple of weeks ago issue a whole list of what they call stakeholder notices, which is basically notices that are directed to specific businesses and sectors saying, you know, this is what you would need to do um, if the UK left, uh, you know, left the single market customs union at the end of the transition period with no agreement. Um, And they're expected to issue more guidance over the coming weeks. I think where the EU has 
you know, an advantage is obviously the commission have a group of people who this is their bread and butter. They know everything and they can and they can quickly say, OK, well, we'll pull in 10 more officials to look at this and they can do that because they they to a certain extent have more bandwidth. Um, and because the commission and particularly Michel Barnier's team has set up a system where they're in constant contact with member states and the European Parliament, it means that actually the comm side of things, raising awareness, they they, they sort of are really pushing that and making sure that it that it that it is absolutely um, forefront and centre of what they're doing. The problem is is that they don't want to give the UK the sense that they have now pivoted towards managing a no agreement outcome. Their number one priority is to reach a deal, and so they they want that to be the emphasis. So everything that they do on on you know preparing EU governments and also EU businesses for a no trade deal outcome will be happening, but that's not where they want to shine the light. And one of the issues that Michael Gove wrote to his opposite number chair of the Joint Committee uh, was about the treatment of UK citizens who'd use their free movement rights to live in Europe. Is that sort of now all settled? Are, yeah, we've heard quite big numbers coming out of the UK settled status scheme. I think 3.3 million people registered, which means probably just slightly more than we thought lived here in the first place. But anyway, um, yeah, is that all going fine in the EU? Did Michael Gove just making a political point or was that a substantive problem for British citizens in Europe? Funny because we were chatting about this, weren't we? Um, just earlier on uh, over coffee with our with our colleague Joe Owen about sort of, you know, what the settled status um, uh, scheme had worked in the UK. And I think to a certain extent, it, it can be seen as something that's worked quite well. The UK government reacted quickly and actually lots of member state governments were looking at this and thinking, crikey, if they can do it, then we should be able to do it as well. Um, the difference is, of course, is when you are uh, treated as a third country, then sort of British citizens would then become um, you know, that um, basically, if you if you were to move to a country after the transition period, then you would have to uh, abide by that member state's immigration rules. You would be treated quite differently. Now, this settled status obviously covers British citizens and EU citizens who either live in the UK and the EU before the end of the transition period. So it's slightly different, but some member states just haven't really had the capacity. And then there's all sorts of systems. Like when you look at France, there's region, you know, British citizens have to register within the département, but then it's actually, you know, the whole scheme and system is managed at the federal level. And then of course with COVID, people aren't able to turn up. And then there are all sorts of like, bureaucratic hurdles there but I think and um, this is something the commission realized actually although it's it's more something member states lead on we really need to do something on this because actually the UK government has a point this is a responsibility it is a commitment we made under the withdrawal agreement and we need to get our act together so I think the commission has um, you know stepped up it's it's helped to member states and assistance in that because it's been mentioned more by Barnier, hasn't it, more yeah. recently? I feel like he, he's flagged it a few more times when he's given his press press conference sort of statements because I think up until sort of last... Well, yeah, I mean, the main focus was around... In terms of implementing the withdrawal agreement, the main focus was all on uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol and not much discussion at all about citizens' rights. And I think there is something about the fact that there are so many EU citizens in the UK that they've been quite a successful lobbying group, whereas clearly there hasn't been quite the same um, in the EU member states. Yeah, and then again, depends how many British citizens that there are in different countries. So. so I just want to finish up by asking a sort of bit of uh, what happened next. Georgie, uh, at various points, various uh, UK Brexit secretaries and others have assumed that the German car manufacturers would ride over the horizon to rescue the deal because 
BMWs wouldn't be bought in the UK with a 10% tariff. Uh, the Germans are about to take over the presidency of the EU. Is that going to be, in a phrase that I think is about to go on the banned list, a game changer? I mean, I... I really like this question because I actually think it goes um, to the heart of how Germany sees its own role within the EU. So obviously, um, Germany has always seen itself as a broker. So it doesn't, it's sort of a reluctant to be a leader in the EU. So anything it does, it will want to make sure that any intervention Merkel gives on, on Brexit will be, will have the backing of member states. So I think that's, that's worth remembering. The second thing is, Germans really care about process, rules, roles and responsibilities. So Barnier is chief negotiator. Barnier negotiates on behalf of the member states and that won't change. You won't see Merkel all of a sudden turning up to negotiations and trying to to do something. But that being said, they do take their role as chairing the uh, presidency of the council very seriously. Um, I mean, you know, to to take an example, they, Germany were were the member states who brokered the Lisbon Treaty all those years ago, so that you had the failure of the constitutional treaty a couple of years before that. And it was the Germans who managed to get all the member states around the table and the European Parliament to agree to what quite fundamental changes to the EU treaty. The only reason why it's called the Lisbon Treaty is because actually member states signed it under Portugal's uh, presidency of the council which came um uh, which followed germany's um chair uh, pres- eu presidency sorry um the third aspect i say is merkel so merkel's really interesting as well she cares deeply about the eu um, but she also has a much more strategic approach to europe as a whole um and i think she is thinking kind of more broadly about this you know do if we have a no agreement fallout where does this leave the UK will the UK be running you know into the arms of the US what's the UK going to do on China there is a sense that we need to keep the UK involved in our conversations and frankly she she might not want to see the failure of a UK EU negotiation under her watch particularly given this is like the last presidency that she will be sharing um but as I said, you know, there's only so much Germany could do. They fully support Barnier. It is a question of how member states agree, what they agree to compromise on and when. Um, and bearing in mind that there are other really serious discussions going on in the EU. So obviously finalising this seven-year EU budget and also settling the um, EU coronavirus recovery fund. These are big discussions. They're tricky. Where does Brexit fit within all of this is, is interesting. So we'll see. And and assuming he's not having to spend 14 days in quarantine here, Emmanuel Macron faces uh, difficult, I think, presidential elections next year. Um, how do, will the French move? Ultimately, it only takes one member state to say no, and the French have a bit of a track record on that with the UK. Yeah, but the French are also standing up for the interests of, of their own you know, constituencies. I think France, more than any other country, knows um, that, that actually it's, it takes two to tango. Um, I think this is where Germany in particular can play a crucial role, where it's, it often actually did when the UK was still a member state. It sort of brokered when, when France and the UK were really at odds. Germany sort of piped up and said, oh, let's, you know, let's talk about this and let's find an agreement. Um, I think France have very firm views on where they will not compromise so a lot, again, will depend on, on what negotiators, how far they, you know, what, what kind of agreement they reach over the summer. Um, and if there are significant stumbling blocks, 
uh, whether we need political intervention at that point. Um, but I think they are pragmatic as well, um, and they know that at some point to reach a deal, um, it will require both sides to move. And James, will we get a deal with the US before we get a deal with the EU? I think Mr Lighthouser has just been saying it's unlikely to be able to conclude a deal before uh, the US elections. Yes, there's there's just not enough time. And I think Mr Lighthizer has just been saying the obvious there. Uh, trade agreements on the whole take uh, a, a very long time to conclude. The fastest, I think, on record was the US-Australia trade agreement, which took just under a year, very, very little under a year. The UK and the US had their first round uh, of negotiations back uh, about a month, six weeks ago. Uh, so even if they go as fast as anyone ever has, it would still take us into next year and so beyond the end of the, this, this presidency. And of course, if Mr. Trump is not re-elected, if, if, if Mr. Biden wins, uh, then US transitions, because they don't have a permanent senior mm -hmm. civil service, tend to take quite a long time. So it could well be towards probably this time next year before the US trade representative is fully up and running again. And of course, Lighthizer is the US trade representative, which I should have said at the uh, said when I asked that question. Um, just to finish off, I'm wondering whether to go around and say deal or no deal, but I always hate that when people do that. I'm not sure what appetite there there is. Uh, but I think uh, just one question, uh, just one final question. I don't know who pitches in uh, on this. The UK is clear it doesn't need an extension. We've talked about how much there is to do. There's always the risk uh, of either the UK or the EU being hit by a second coronavirus wave. Uh, Katya Adler mentioned that on a uh, podcast we did for UK and Changing Europe. If that happens, can they go back and say, actually, we really do need just a few extra months to get this all done and dusted? Who wants to pitch in? I'd say yes. I mean, if, if, if there's a will, there's always a way. Um, and there are creative lawyers... Uh, in Brussels who could come up with a solution. The question really is, is there enough political will? And I think um, this is where rhetoric matters hugely. If the UK government becomes quite confrontational in tone, there might just be zero political appetite on the other side to, 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 to kind of try and find ways to secure more time because they're thinking, well, it's so acrimonious, maybe a breakdown uh, will, will force kind of, you know, both sides to go back, to have a think and then come back level-headed uh, 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 you know, whenever they decide to pick up negotiations again. So I think, yes, when there's political will, there's a legal way. Um, I'm just not quite sure at this point where, whether there is political will. Who knows? <laughs> OK, so that's one thing possibly to watch for in the autumn. Maddie, what's the big thing you're going to be watching for in the next uh, next few months? What might be your sort of leading indicator of, uh, of something interesting about to develop? Well, what's interesting about to develop? I mean, I think I think what's quite interesting actually, just on that. I mean, maybe related on that point about like sort of looking for more time. I think it's really going to come down to whether or not there's a deal to be struck. I think it's going to if if both sides end up walking away from the talks, I can't see them uh, sort of agreeing. They're going to have a bit more time to try and make the changes that will be needed at the end of, end of the year. I think the other thing I'd say that I'm quite interested in is. We've business voices have been very, very silent about the need for more time. We know that they're underprepared and that COVID has taken up all their energy. But as Georgie said, the political uh, will at the moment is just like not in listening mode at all to, to the need for more time to prepare. So I'm going to be quite interested to see whether more heads are sort of raised above the parapet saying, actually, you know what, a bit more time would be very helpful. So I think I'll be I'll be looking to see whether that might change in the autumn. 
And Jess, do we need a deal to save the union? Um, I mean, I think it's certainly under threat um, if we don't have one, but I also think it's it's under threat either way. Um, I think because of COVID, we've seen a lot of uh, intergovernmental working um, being focused on, on the coronavirus response. At the beginning, we saw a big push by all the governments to kind of put politics aside and work together. As I think the immediate threat of COVID is, is lessening, we're seeing the politics creeping in a lot more. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, we've already seen the first um, argument of the year, uh, big argument argument of the year between the devolved administrations and the UK government over Brexit. I think as we get closer to December, those tensions are going to ramp up and they're going to ramp up and we're going to see uh, Scotland put put back into place the preparations for a second independence referendum that they paused because of COVID. Um, the UK government continuing to refuse to entertain the idea that there will be a second independence referendum. Um, and while, you know, legally it can do that, there's, you know, we're going to see the pressure build and build and build. Um, and so I think there's a lot needs to be done to try and repair that relationship and northern ireland border pole oh i don't know that one's that i think that one's quite quite a difficult um one to tell i don't think it's in the immediate future um a big part of that is because uh at the moment the republic of ireland uh is not necessarily interested in that but with the new coalition uh, that's just been agreed uh, there is going to be um i forget now if it's an office or what exactly form it's going to take but there's going to be um some work to try and build a consensus on what a united island might look like um kind of politically um and socially and such like um so i, th I don't think we're going to see anything like that in the immediate term um but particularly as pressure on the irish government comes from from Sinn Féin's uh, election success even though they didn't get the seats that um that, that they perhaps could have got they still did very well um we might see a slightly more nationalist Irish government um, and and who knows what the kind of long-term implications of the protocol will be whether they'll kind of force uh, they'll you know help the all-island economy while slightly removing Northern Ireland from from the UK economy uh, so yeah one to watch so so I think we're going to wind up there thanks all very much for listening Brexit is back well Brexit never really went away and Brexit is far from done whatever the Prime Minister might like to say uh, as Jess was mentioning, there are a lot of Brexit and Devo events coming up. So watch out for them if you're interested in some of those issues about Brexit and the union. Uh, there's a new report uh, due out. Oh, well, maybe we could get that done by the end of July, as the Prime Minister might say, on Brexit and readiness that's coming from the IFG team about the state of business preparations. And there's going to be a very big advertising campaign reminding us to get ready for Brexit. And that probably means getting your pet vaccinated now, because remember, that's a four month lag uh, in order to take Fluffy to France in early January. So thank you very much for listening. And we're going to wind up there. And great thanks to Maddie, Jess, Georgie and James. Thank you for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.